We'll hear argument first this morning in case 08-1470, Burgess v. Tompkins. Mr. Restuccia. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in rejecting Mr. Tompkins' Miranda claim and ineffective assistance of counsel claim, the Michigan courts did not unreasonably apply clearly established Supreme Court precedent. I plan to focus on the Miranda claim. Now, with respect to the Miranda claim, there really are two distinct inquiries at issue. The first is whether Mr. Tompkins impliedly waived his rights under the Fifth Amendment, and second, whether he invoked his right to remain silent during the police interview. Regarding the waiver question, this Court established in Butler that there may be an implied waiver even where a suspect remains silent after having received his Miranda warnings, where that suspect knowingly receives his rights and there is a course of conduct that indicates waiver. The Michigan courts here did not unreasonably conclude that Mr. Tompkins had impliedly waived his rights, where he expressly acknowledged his rights under, uh, from his form after having read out loud from that form. He participated in a limited fashion during the interview. But he didn't, he didn't waive them, and quite unlike Butler, Butler, uh, if I have it right, said, I'll talk to you. So that was a statement that, that he was waiving the right to remain silent. He volunteered to talk. Yeah, there was no such uh, indication that there was a, a waiver of his right to remain silent. Although in Butler, this Court noted that, Ms. that, uh, that Butler himself had remained silent and did not answer, the, answer at all or remained silent when asked whether he wished to waive his right to counsel. So the, the standard that was established from which the Michigan courts relied is really on this, this language or the standards established from Butler that you can, in, you can imply waiver from the knowing reception and then a course of conduct because the, the inference can be drawn from the words and actions of the person interrogated. And here, could you tell me without more detail, which is what the circuit court said, about what the respond, limited responses, I'm using your word, were, how do we, how can we imply waiver? Well, Meaning if all he said was, yes, I want the mint, that's much different than saying if someone had asked him, do you want to leave, and he shakes his head no. The latter might imply to me that um, he waived, but the former certainly would be neutral. I think you have to carefully delineate between waiver and invocation. So here the waiver occurs at the time that he's asked the series of questions. Do you believe in God? Uh, did you pray to God? Did you pray for forgiveness? That, that happened about uh, two hours and 15 minutes into the uh, exercise, didn't it? That's right. It happened okay. near so, the So what we have here is a course of conduct uh, of two hours and 15 minutes of saying nothing. Well, we say that that's, that's uh, uh, gone past the point where well, this, if you're looking at what's been clearly established for this Court, this Court has never — I mean, one of the arguments raised against this, the position I'm advocating is that there's an immediacy requirement. Well, this Court in Butler didn't say that the waiver had to occur immediately. In Butler, he said, I will talk to you, but I am not signing any form. But if you think, look at what's the clearly established law, this Court identified the standard. What can be inferred from the words and actions of the person interrogated. And if you look at what the two acts they say is a course of conduct, we will not hold, this does not mean a defendant's silence coupled with an understanding and a course of conduct indicating waiver may never support a conclusion. Right. But the prosecution's burden is great. 
Right. And, and if, if you look at the two aspects of what constitutes a waiver, it's of knowing and intelligent and voluntary. At the time that Mr. Tompkins gave his answers to that series of questions, there's nothing in the course of that interview that suggested that no longer did he know that he didn't have to answer questions. But going back to Justice Sotomayor's question, is there anything during the two hours and 15 minutes that could suggest a waiver? The, the, the waiver occurs at the time that he answered the question. So the answer is that he didn't waive before then, but that it still is evidence to show that that course, that nothing the police had done, there were no threats. What do we do with our case law that says that you can't infer waiver simply from the confession? Well, I mean, the, we have said that, so that's pretty clearly established well, the, statement the, by the court. The courts on direct review have allowed, where there's been a knowing reception of one's rights, have allowed the answers themselves provide the evidence that the person did waive his rights. In fact, well, I think certainly in, in Butler, if someone in their confession says, "I know I don't have to talk to you, but I want to," that that would be using those words. But that would be, how can that would be an say, express waiver, though. How can you say that an appeal to uh, someone's religious position after two and a quarter hours is a voluntary waiver? Well, if you look at what this Court has provided in terms of guidance regarding uh, what constitutes a lengthy interrogation, because Miranda note, notes that a lengthy interrogation would be strong evidence against there being a valid waiver. But what this Court has determined to be a lengthy interrogation were interrogations of much longer duration. In fact, Miranda even talks about — didn't say — we don't have any decision that says — the police are home free for two and a quarter hours. You said that this was not lengthy interrogation. Right. But we ha- we have no decision that says that the police, faced with a, a silent suspect, goes after that suspect, questioning him incessantly for two and two hours and fifteen minutes. That that is not lengthy. Well, uh, I think it's important to remember that the factual record here was established by the state court, and the factual record isn't that he remained absolutely silent, but that he participated. He said, yeah, no, and I don't know. Right, that he was participating. Now, there's a fundamental difference between remaining absolutely silent and participating. Do, 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 do we have any case that says that two and a quarter hours is too long? No, and in fact. And that there can't be a waiver after two and a quarter hours. No, there's no case law. And therefore, there's no clearly established Supreme Court law that two and a quarter hours is too long. That's, that's the Isn't that the name of the game here? That's the is there a clearly established rule that in all of the circumstances of a case, uh, we can find that there is coercion, time being one aspect of those circumstances? I think that's right. And what, what, one of the and the, so that is a clearly established rule. And then it's a question whether two and a half, three and a half, four and a half suffices. Right. The, the case that I said was Fraser versus Cup, in which the interview started at 5 p.m. and it finished at 6:45 p.m. And the court called that an interrogation of short duration. And it's important to remember that this court has stated expressly in Davis that once you have knowingly received your rights, that the knowing reception itself dispels the inherently coercive aspect. Your, your position is that if this same facts, uh, but it's 10 hours instead of two and a half. Uh, is that a closer case, at least? For that's, a, that's a very different case, because there is case law. Like, I, I cited Blackburn was an interview that ran eight or nine hours, and this Court found that that person was probably incompetent or insane. But the, that, that duration is uh, there's been guidance about that kind of long duration, whereas an hour — Does that show that it's, the, the circumstances are, are coercive so that even if there were a waiver, it would be 
Right. That's the suggestion from Miranda, that a long, lengthy interrogation preceding the waiver can suggest the waiver was not valid. The question, of course, is not whether we think two and a quarter hours under all the circumstances um, is, is too long under our precedent. The question is instead whether it would be unreasonable for the State Court to determine otherwise. That's right. That ultimately the question is what guidance is there to the State of Michigan in applying the implied waiver doctrine to indicate that the implied waiver couldn't come after two hours and 15 minutes of, of interaction in which it concluded that the, that the suspect had been a willing participant. The testimony from Detective Helgert, which he was the only person to testify at the evidentiary hearing, is that I thought Miranda held that you can't question a person uh, uh, unless he waives his right. No, Miranda, in fact, talks about You can question him even after he uh, — it's clear that he hasn't waived his right. Is that — that's Miranda, or at least that's unclear? Is warnings — warnings is a prerequisite to questioning, but the waiver is not. In fact, what — No, I'm not talking about the waiver. I'm saying imagine that it's clear that a person hasn't waived his right. Now, let's suppose he says, I do not waive my right. Okay? Now, is it clear law that once he says — I do not waive my right, the police cannot continue to question him. If there is a... Is that clear law, yes or no? Uh, yes. That is okay, very... yes. If that's clear law, would you say that at some point before the two hours and 15 minutes expires, where they're continuously asking him questions and he says nothing, that it has become clear that he has not waived his right? No, that the, the factual record... So the question is not this. The question is whether, after two hours and 15 minutes of silence, it is clear. It's nothing about Supreme Court law. Supreme Court law is clear. You cannot question him after uh, he makes clear he hasn't waived his right. So then the question becomes, is it reasonable for a state court to say, after two hours and 15 minutes of asking questions and he says nothing, is it reasonable to hold that he has not concluded that he has not waived his rights. Is that the, is that the question? Yes. The, the, the question, as I see it, is that is that. Let me let me see if I understand. Well, let me see if I understand your question. There's a difference between refusing to waive or saying I will not waive my rights. That essentially, if you make it an express statement that you're unwilling to waive, then essentially it is in that case. I mean, I'm going to keep these separate, but that would be an invocation. I do not wish to answer your questions. If you make a crystal clear statement like that, it's a different question. But here, Mr. Tompkins didn't say he was unwilling to waive. He's participating. You Now, you suggest that there was You're silence. saying there's a difference between a waiver and a failure to assert. Yes, exactly. Here is the, the fact pattern here is he did not say, I am unwilling to waive. I do not wish to this interview to go forward. He doesn't do that. He just doesn't assert. I want assert. to change the Miranda rule to say tell someone their rights, and unless they explicitly say, I don't want to talk to you, then they implicitly, under virtually any circumstance, haven't. That's what you believe the rule in Miranda and Butler and Davis sets forth. Butler states that where there is silence after the provision of the Miranda warnings, silence, that where the, the subsequent conduct where knowing reception of rights and the course of conduct didn't was There wasn't silence in Butler. There was an express, I want to talk to you. I understand. That's a fact of Butler. But the standards by which all the courts are operating, including the Michigan courts, are the standards articulated by Butler. Butler says 
that the waiver can be inferred from the words and actions of the person interrogated. My, 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 if, but we go back to the point you made earlier. Your position is the moment that someone confesses, that's an implicit waiver. No, because there could have been actions taken by the police during the course of this interview. There were no threats. There were no improper promises. I don't understand how this person could sit there for two hours and didn't want to be interrogated and doesn't say, you know, I don't want to answer your questions. He just sits there and some questions he doesn't answer. He, he does make a few comments anyway. Right. Why, why shouldn't we have a rule which simply says, if you don't want to be interrogated, all you have to say is, I don't want to answer your questions. Mr. Thompson. It's nice and clear. Wouldn't be any problem at all. That was never said here. He, he in fact, submitted to having these questions asked of him. I think that that kind of cuts the nub of what Miranda says. Miranda says that ultimately the statement has to be the free election of the suspect. And here, when Mr. Tompkins answered the series of questions, he knew that he didn't have to answer those questions, and nothing the police had done during the course of the interview had undermined the provision of rights, because it's those two aspects which are the core, that the knowing and intelligent and whether it's voluntary. Nothing the police had done had undermined. Why should the police have to play this game of, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, two hours and 15 minutes, five hours, seven hours? Why, why, why don't we have just a clear rule? You're, you're, you're read your rights. If you don't, if you don't want to be questioned, all you have to say is, I don't want to be questioned. I think that's right, that here Mr. Tompkins at any point could have said What would you do with Miranda's statement? But a valid waiver will not be presumed simply from the silence of the accused. <coughs> I grant you, as modified in Butler, to say that the State has a heavy burden of showing that the silence followed by and a con confession. The State has a heavy burden of showing that that is an affirmative waiver. Now, those, I think, are the two statements of law. The third being that after, if there is no waiver, the police cannot continue to question. Now, I thought that was the clear law. It, it, I grant you, you might argue for a change in the law. But but this, this language from Miranda that says the silence of the accused after warnings are given would not be sufficient. That's right, but Butler then fully explain, explains. I mean, think about the state courts are coming in. They, they then, this court then made clear that even silence after having received Miranda warnings, that if you knowingly receive your rights and there's a course of conduct that indicates waiver, that there can be a waiver. That's exactly what the federal courts have done in direct review. Now, thinking about the Michigan courts and trying to determine what's how these rules are to be applied, the federal courts have found in the absence of a waiver where a suspect knowingly receives his rights and then answers questions implicating himself, that the answers themselves can serve as the basis for the finding of a waiver. That's what the, the conclusion that Mr. Tompkins waived here is a reasonable one. It's not objectively unreasonable. And, of course, you have to recall the overarching habeas uh, law that governs this, that not just does a Michigan court decision have to be incorrect, it has to be objectively unreasonable. And Is there a difference between, between uh, waiving uh, your right and a failure to assert your right? Yes, there is a difference. That here, Mr. Tompkins did not assert his right. He did not. Is every failure to assert a waiver? No, because uh, at the point... The, uh, the point at which Mr. Tompkins waived is when he acts inconsistent with the exercise of his rights. When he answers questions knowing that he doesn't have to answer, 
That is the waiver. What about before that? What, what is happening before that? Before, and that he hasn't asserted his right. I mean, he hasn't said Right. So what happens is he has not waived and he has not invoked. He's done neither. He has, he has neither, neither waived nor, nor And there's nothing. Asserted. The way the Miranda rule works is that the waiver is a, is a prerequisite for the admission of the evidence, but not for the interrogation itself. Yeah. So what happens is the — well, if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve my remaining time for, for — Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Harsky? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Respondent's confession was properly admitted at his trial. I'd like to go right to some of the questions that this Court had about the language that was used in the Miranda decision and in the Butler decision. Both — all of this language comes up in Butler. Now, Butler was a case not about the waiver of the right to silence, but a waiver of the right to counsel. So the suspect said, I will talk to you. But the North Carolina Supreme Court said, well, we don't know if he waived his right to counsel, and that's why the Court got into a question of an implied waiver. So the Court, in its analysis in Butler, first reviewed this language that the Court has talked about this morning from Miranda that says a valid waiver will not be presumed simply from the silence of the accused or simply from the fact that a confession was, in fact, eventually obtained. And this is our understanding of that language. First, it is not the case that a failure to invoke Miranda rights will be taken in the Miranda context as a waiver. Now, Justice Scalia, I think you alluded to the fact that the normal rule for the Fifth Amendment at trial is that you assert your rights or they're waived. But Miranda's an exception to that, that the failure to assert we are not going to take as a waiver. The government has to do something more. So do, do you read — yes. So do you read Miranda as saying that there cannot be questioning unless there is a waiver? Then we'll go on to — or do you no. okay you do not so no. are you going to go on because this is right where you are are you going to go on to say that they're in the Miranda context uh, the failure to assert can can suffice to allow the questioning to proceed as long as the warnings are given the uh, accused has been told of his rights and that the police will respect his rights and questioning can proceed the Court said in Davis, it said in other cases, um, Moran versus Furbine, that the primary protection afforded by Miranda is to level the playing field by letting the accused know of his rights and that the police will respect them. And after the point that he gets his rights and understands them, the police can question him. You'd have to overrule Butler to say that there has to be a waiver before any questioning. Just to get back to the, the second thing that the Court said in Miranda that was picked up in Butler, it said, we're not going to assume that there's a waiver simply from the fact that a confession was eventually obtained. There's a burden on the government. And the way that we understand that is that the government can't just go into court and say, look, we have a confession. We know he waived his rights. But why he, isn't that language that you quote um, a, a, a negative inference uh, that there must be a waiver? <laughs> Well, if you, if you look back at the language, the other language in Miranda, it says that a waiver is a prerequisite to the admission of the evidence at trial, that we know that to be able to use that evidence, we, we have to know that he made a knowing and intelligent and voluntary decision to talk. But that, he, that doesn't mean he has to make the decision to talk right away. He might want to listen to what the police have to say about the benefits of cooperation or the evidence that they have in his case. And that's those are the kind of things the police could say that could be understood to be custodial interrogation. So there's a difference between waiving at the time of the interrogation and then waiving it at the time of trial? I don't understand that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to suggest that. What I'm saying is at the time the respondent makes his statements, 
that waiver, ha- there has to be a waiver, and it has to be a knowing, intelligent, and voluntary one. That at the time he makes his statements here, when he admitted that he shot the boy down, he had to understand what his rights were, and there had, those statements had to not be the result of police coercion. And no court here has found that they were the result of police coercion. There's no question about voluntariness here. So what we understand this language in Butler to mean about an implied waiver is the fact of a confession itself is not enough to show the government has met its burden. When the Court talked about a course of conduct, it talked about the same standard that it's always used in the Miranda context that came up again recently in this Court's decision in Schatzer, which is that the ultimate question is a knowing, intelligent, and voluntary waiver. The course of conduct doesn't mean anything more than that. It means that at the time the guy spoke. But in this case, it was the fact of the concession, the confession that constituted the waiver. That shows that he decided to talk, but the confession itself isn't enough. We needed to have, the state needed to have evidence that he understood his rights, which he said he did, and that there was, that the confession was not the product of police coercion. And I think that that comes through directly in the, the, the language that's at issue in Butler. The Court said, an express written or oral statement of waiver to remain silent or the right to counsel is strong proof of the validity of the waiver, but not inevitably necessary. The question is not one of form but whether the defendant, in fact, knowingly and voluntarily waived the rights delineated in Miranda. But I just want to make sure where we are. You're not — you are conceding, it seems to me, that there must be a waiver. Before the evidence can be admitted at trial. I just don't understand. Okay. Why why can't — we have to guide the police. Yes. Uh, Why don't we tell the police there must be a waiver before you can continue to interrogate? That would, that would exact a substantial price on law enforcement, and that's the exact argument that Justice Brennan made in the Butler case that was rejected. He was in dissent in that case. He said the police should always have to, ta- have to seek a waiver before they I don't know why you didn't answer Justice Stevens' question by saying, Justice Stevens, I don't care about waiver. There was no, uh, there was no assertion of the right. But you're not saying that. You're admitting there has to be a waiver. Yes, to admit the evidence at trial, there has to be a waiver. Why do you say it would change the police's behavior? Inbow and Reed and, you know, the, 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 NAC, the uh, defense lawyer's brief here is filled with quotations from typical police manuals, and they all seem to say things like, you have to have, at once the waiver is given, the police may proceed with interrogation. That seems to be what police today are instructed across the country. It says you cannot question people until he indicates after the warning is given a willingness to answer questions. That's the police manual. So why do you say this would extract a price on law enforcement when the typical police manuals seem to say uh, what the uh, petitioner here is saying? Not every police manual says that. That brief itself cites many examples going both ways. It is often the case, and it is often the case in federal law enforcement, that the police try to seek a waiver immediately after giving rights because we want to avoid the problems of proof that come up at trial if we don't have a written waiver. Which which are the police manuals that go your way? Because I want to look at those, too. Um, I'm sorry. I, I don't. I don't have the specific citations from the brief. I, I know from asking the federal law enforcement agencies, DHS, mm-hmm. um, the FBI, and the DEA, that the DEA does not invariably seek a waiver and that we don't understand that we need to get an immediate waiver. And, again, that was what Justice Brennan said 
in, in dissent in Butler is that the police should have to seek an immediate waiver. And the Court said, no, the Fifth Amendment right is compel, compel, about compelled statements being introduced at trial. We don't need this protection if the police have to seek an immediate waiver. In fact, if you adopted a rule like that, it would essentially take any burden off the suspect to invoke his rights. He wouldn't need to invoke his rights because the police would just have — if the police didn't seek a waiver. Well, you're saying there, there, there's a difference, I, I assume, between uh, 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 not, not waiving and positively asserting your right not to be interrogated. That's exactly right. If the so if, if he had here, he simply refused to sign the, uh, the Miranda form, right? That's which right. Would have, which would have been the, the waiver. Uh, and, and you're saying it's his later behavior that, uh, that, that showed that, in fact, he waived. What if, in, instead of just refusing to sign, he had said, I do not want to be interrogated? Then the interrogation stops. Okay. And that so so he, he has the right to uh, terminate the whole thing by asserting his right. If he neither asserts the right nor grants the waiver, the police can continue to try to uh, obtain a statement from him. Right. A contrary rule would have to overrule Butler because the Court said that you can clearly infer waiver from the actions and words of the person interrogated. That assumes that the person is being interrogated. Just to talk a minute about the That also assumes there has to be a waiver. Yes. At the time that the person makes the inculpatory statements that are going to be introduced at trial, it must be the case that he decided he was going to talk to the police knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily. Excuse me. As I read this transcript, the police's tactic by their own statement was to approach him and say, this is our evidence. Explain yourself. Explain. That's the words the officer used. Everybody's entitled to an alternative explanation. Tell us. What's clear is that at no point did he answer those questions. Because nothing about the nods of the head or anything else showed a willingness to confess. And even in the responses he gave, he answered a series of questions with a yes, but not with an explanation, which was what was being requested. So my question is, how does one infer a voluntary statement from a situation in which someone's really not talking? I've never understood how a yes or a nod to questions that don't, that's what the circuit said, to questions that we don't know what they were about. Do you want to mint or not? I don't even know that. Um, can reflect voluntariness. And I understand it in Butler when someone says, I don't want to sign that, but I'm going to spill my guts now and does. That's a course of conduct one could view as voluntary. Right. And we say that the waiver occurred at the time he answered the questions about his belief in God. And it doesn't matter what he said in response to the earlier questions, as long as at the time that he answered the questions about God, his decision to talk was a knowing and intelligent and voluntary. Un- unless, I assume, the, you, 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 you acknowledge that if the interrogation had, go on, had gone on for so long that it had become coercive, then that, that, that last statement would not, uh, would, would not be a voluntary waiver. That's right, but respondent made a voluntariness argument throughout all of the courts in this case, and every court has rejected it. Thank you, Mr. Harsky. Ms. Jacobs? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Um, when I review Miranda, I find language from Miranda that says that you have to have a, a advice of rights and a waiver before you question. And I just want to direct the Court to page 
475 of Miranda, requirement of warnings and waiver is a fundamental aspect of the Fifth Amendment privilege and not simply a preliminary ritual to existing interrogation methods. What happens when you read Butler? Butler, I think, is an interesting case because Butler is mostly aimed at the right to counsel. When you talk about the right to counsel and the right to remain silent, you have really two different kinds of rights. And there's an assertion requirement in the right to counsel. You can't exercise that right without getting some help from the police. But the right to remain silent, we don't require that it be asserted. It is a presumption. And that presumption Your remains. Your argument is that you can infer waiver of the right to counsel from conduct, but you can't infer waiver of the right to remain silent from conduct. Essentially, yes. Um, What's your best authority for that proposition? Let me make sure that I, that I said yes to the right thing. You can, I do, you can take an implied waiver of the, of the right to silence. I, I do agree with that. And I look at the cases that have been cited, and I know that there are three kinds of examples. One is the person walks into the police station and he says, I want to confess. That's a voluntary confession. You don't have to assert anything. He's, he's going to confess. If you have a steady stream of speech in which he says, I don't want to talk, but I'll tell you about this, again, you have somebody acting voluntarily. Um, someone who says, I'll only talk about drugs, but I'm not going to talk about murder. He's implied, he's waived his right to that. But in this case, when you look at this case, the key issue really is, was it volitional? What fact would lead a court to decide that, there, that my client — So basically what you're saying is that if the, the defendant here had said at the beginning, I don't know whether I'm, I'm going to talk to you or not, but I'm going to listen to your questions, and I might answer some and I might answer others, that would be a different case. Yes, absolutely. You have an applied waiver. And where is there — what Supreme Court case establishes the distinction between those two situations? Clearly. Well, Davis is a case that talks about the assertion of the right to counsel, but does not apply to the right to remain silent. So I think as long as you still have the presumption of the presumption of the, the privilege against self-incrimination as a presumptive right, the police have to do something to move you off square one in order to make it voluntary. Am I answering your question, Justice Scalia? Not sure I really understand. It depends on what you, what, what, what you mean to make it. It depends on what it is. To, if, if you mean the ultimate confession, I think I don't agree. Ultimately, uh, if he confesses and hasn't been coerced, it's voluntary. But if by the it you mean to make the continuation of the interrogation voluntary, that's a different question, and I don't know that our cases establish that you cannot continue the interrogation until there has been a waiver. Well, Justice Scalia, I've just read you page 475 from Miranda that says the requirement is warnings and waiver, and that's not, as they said, a preliminary ritual. That means more. Siebert, and I know it's a preliminary a, uh, plurality. Does that, does that make it clear that, that, that there has to be a waiver before the interrogation can continue? And if it does, how does it square with Butler? Again, Butler is really a right to counsel case. They're both under, they're both under Miranda. Both of those rights are Miranda rights. In Butler, the, the waiver, 
the voluntary act of the person being interrogated really occurred very, very early. There wasn't any kind of a gap. He said, I don't, I believe he said, I don't want to, I, I don't want to do something in writing, but I'll talk to you. Now, that is a voluntary act. I'm going to talk to you. That's clearly a waiver. That isn't what we've got in this case. You have a young man who is sitting in a chair looking at the ground. He's sullen. The only time he looks at the officer is when the officer directs him to look. And I thought your answer was that there does not have to be a waiver before questioning can occur. No, there must be a waiver. There's there no such be. thing as Miranda does not say that. I mean, I think, I think that Justice Scalia is right on okay. that. But Miranda doesn't say you can't question him. The pages that you read to us say that if you have a lengthy questioning, then the fact that he then gives a statement cannot uh, be taken as a st- cannot be admitted. That's, that's what it seems to say okay. on page 476 in the absence of some special circumstance. In this case, because it went, because the interrogation lasted so long. Am I, am I right? That, I mean, Miranda does right. not explicitly say that you cannot continue questioning. Am I right about that? Um, I'm asking because I don't know. I, and I, I, I want to answer you with what, with what I read. The requirement of warnings and waiver is fundamental. My argument is that you cannot continue to question someone who has not waived the right. So what if that the person says, I, I'm not waiving, but I'm not saying that I uh, will never waive? I'll listen to your questions. I think you've got a waiver. When he says, I'm not, not waiving? He's, but he's willing to talk to the police. In my case, Mr. Tompkins was unwilling. He could, he would not look at anybody. He would not answer questions. We don't know what the I don't know and the yeah was to. Um, so that's a very, uh, my case is a very different case than what you're proposing. There's no willingness to engage with the police. There is, in fact, this feeling that there is coercion going on. The longer that interrogation. Before I can understand your case, I would like to understand this hypothetical. If the person says, I'm not waving, but I'm not telling you that I won't wave at some point in the future, I'll listen to your questions. I think he's engaging in a conversation. That's a waiver. I think he's engaging in a conversation with the police, and that the police at that point can continue to talk. But that isn't what happened in this case. There was no indication by my client that he wanted to listen, that he wanted to talk. The longer that interrogation well, lasted, he, he, the more he didn't say anything. You, you, I think you could say that uh, his uh, conduct uh, implied the very kind of statement that Justice Alito suggested in his hypothetical. Well, I'll listen to you guys for a while. What is key, I think, in your, in your hypothetical and in Justice Alito's hypothetical is that you have a defendant that feels comfortable, that is not being oppressed by this coercive atmosphere. My client did not engage in anything, and the longer he sat there, the greater the chances that anything he said was the product of coercion. In the, let me just refresh my recollection. In the record in this case, do we know whether he said he understood his rights? Um, Justice uh, Stevens, that's kind of iffy. The police officer. That was President Butler. Yeah, the police officer in this case said, I, either I don't remember whether I asked him or um, I think he nodded that he understood. I don't think we've got a real solid proof of that. It was um, read to him. Yes. It was and they read had him read 
a portion of the Miranda warning. I don't think they had him read a portion, Justice Scalia. I thought in order to test his knowledge of English, they asked him to read one or two paragraphs. I guess it was just that they didn't ask him to write anything, so they didn't know whether he could write in English. Yes, Justice Scalia, you're correct. So, boy, what what more do you need? I mean, he's he's listening when when they read it to him. He he can read it himself. You're presuming that a defendant thinks that they've got the kind of power to look at a police officer and say, I don't want to talk to you, remove me. Maybe, maybe he doesn't want to talk uh, uh, for the moment, but he does want to listen. I'm not sure you're doing defendants a great, a great favor. I mean, some of them might might want to listen to uh, to the police telling them, you know, by the way, your uh, your co-conspirator is uh, singing like a bird, and uh, he's trying to pin it all on you. And maybe uh, you know, if uh, if you don't want to get left left holding the bag, maybe you better talk to us and tell us what really happened. I'm not sure that, uh, that if, if I were there, even if I didn't want to talk right now, I might still want to listen, which is apparently what this, what this person did. He could have said, I don't want to, I don't want to talk. And it, and it would have ended. That would have been an assertion of his right. He didn't assert his right. But what? He, he sat there and listened. Now, maybe he wanted to find out what the police would have to say to him. There's nothing in, on this record that indicates that he wanted to listen to them, as opposed to what Justice Alito's hypothetical is, where the gentleman says, well, I'm not going to say anything, but I, I want to hear what you have to say. We don't have that here. Well, we have it to the extent that he was told he had the right to remain silent, and he didn't say, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to you. There's no clearly established law that says that he has to assert his right to remain silent. Is there any clearly established law the other way, which is the pertinent question? I think that because there is the presumption, of the, privilege, the privilege is a presumptive right, that he does not have to assert it. This is, this is the right, or the, this, the privilege against self-incrimination, the constitutional command, is the one right that really defines our criminal justice system. It means that you cannot talk to the, that the police do not have the right to talk to the defendant. It makes us an accusatorial system. We're not talking about the Fifth Amendment right. We're talking about the Miranda warnings. There's no issue of voluntariness in this case, right? Well, when there's you no that, suggestion that there's that the statements are not voluntary. The suggestion is that they may have violated Miranda. Right, that's correct. But if you're going to adopt the suggestion of the government that you do pre-interrogation waiver, which I think is what we're talking about, that is, you don't give them his rights and then you can just talk him talk him until you're blue in the face, that that ends up being a more coercive situation than we have now. This is the kind of situation that could have been easily resolved just by the officer asking Mr. Tompkins, do you want to talk to us? Instead, once they establish... What if he said, do you want to remain silent? He could... That's fine. And he doesn't answer either one. Then, then, then he's not cooperating. He's not waiving his rights. It's not voluntary. Take him back to the cell. That's it. Because you're, you're saying then that the defendant has to um, never has to invoke his right. He didn't. That the state of the, the state of the law is that a defendant does not have to invoke his right to remain silent. Davis is the invocation case. It applies to the second stage of um, of the interrogation. And was it, was, it, was the Miranda warning adequate in this case? He got the four warnings. 
But then, unlike some police forms that then ask the defendant, did you waive your rights, this form never asked, did you waive your rights? It just said, do you acknowledge that we have informed you of your rights? That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. That's all that form said. And what the officer said is once Mr. Tompkins would not sign it, he then moved into interview mode. There was no further, if this was an ambiguous act to him, then the officer should have asked the clarifying question. You say you don't have to invoke your rights, but Butler also says that you can impliedly waive them. You don't have to expressly waive them. I'm saying you don't have to invoke the right to remain silent, that that's not the state of the law, that only the right to remain — I'm sorry — the right to counsel must be invoked. Right. So the question under EDPA, you agree there can be an implied waiver. That's what Butler says, right? So the question under EDPA is whether the State Court was unreasonable to determine that there was an implied waiver on these facts. The State actually found uh, two — well, I, I think you're saying it, that there was a, an objectively unreasonable determination of the facts in this case. Yeah. And I think that — and the, it's one way or the other. Right. Um, and I think clearly that there, that there were facts that the Michigan Court of Appeals found that were not supported by the record and were objectively unreasonable. What are those? Uh, the Sixth Circuit found that when the Michigan Court of Appeals said the defendant continued to talk with officers, the Sixth Circuit said that that was an objectively unreasonable finding because there was no continuation, there was no talking. They also found unreasonable that the defendant talked with officers sporadically. The Sixth Circuit said that that was a misrepresentation of the record. The last um, fact that they talked about is the Michigan Court of Appeals said that the defendant made eye contact several times or a number of times. And the Sixth Circuit said, quote, this is what the, they said that that was incorrect. What the officer said at the hearing is that eye contact came only at the end, one of the very, one of the very first times, came only at the end. So, um, but those are important facts. The fact that he was not continuing to talk, he wasn't talking at all. How do you find that this, this voluntariness, that the, that the rights are waived? So those facts are relevant only if we accept your, uh, your, your, your principal uh, assertion, which is uh, that uh, you, you uh, don't have to invoke the right and, uh, and uh, interrogation must cease uh, immediately. If we agree with that, then, then all of this, these facts become relevant. But if we think that uh, uh, until you invoke the right, the police can continue to uh, uh, ask you questions, and it's up to you to answer or not, then those facts are really not relevant at all, are they? I think that's true. I don't want to say it wasn't meant to be a trick question. Um, If you invoke those, if you invoke, if you hold that he has to invoke those rights. On your theory, those 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 factual things are irrelevant. Whether whether well, my theory is that you don't get past the failure to get the waiver. Exactly. Yes. Returning now to, um, to the idea of the pre-interrogation waiver, I would suggest to the Court that that would return this, this Court back to the kind of test that Miranda stopped 
which was the applying the totality of the circumstances test, and that you would then again revert to pre-Miranda law, where and this this I believe is what the uh, Wayne County prosecutor Amicus wants to do is just to apply totality totality of the cir- cir- the circumstances test. Um, to whether, in fact, someone has waived their rights. And I would suggest to you that Miranda has not been a failure, that this bright-line rule, you give the rights, you get the waiver, then you can talk. That that's I must say I've, I've never understood that to be the law, and I don't think it's generally understood to be the law, that unless you get a waiver right at the outset, you have to, you have to terminate uh, interrogation. I, I think there are a lot of police departments that don't uh, — I've never understood that to be the rule. And Justice Scalia, the opposite of that then becomes the ability to keep the but, defendant in a room and the long I'm not saying it isn't a good rule. It may be a good rule. But, but the issue here is whether it is so clearly established that it was unreasonable for the uh, state court to, to think otherwise. And we would just suggest that the state court applied Mosley incorrectly implied Miranda that those are the clearly established law in that. I like clear rules. Your your rule is a clear one. Another clear one uh, would be uh, just the opposite of yours. That is that interrogation can continue unless he asserts his right. That's another clear rule. If we can go either way, and it'll be clear. But if interrogation continues, the longer it continues, the less likely that the statement that is taken is going to be the product of my client's free will. So the, the government is going to have an even greater burden in trying to prove that this statement was voluntary or that the waiver of rights is voluntary. So this Court should not adopt a pre-interrogation waiver rule, especially not one that is — that ends up being as long as this case is. And just in case — you tell me when the police have to stop? They read somebody their rights — the person says nothing. Are you saying on, at that point they have to stop? I think that they can say to the person, do you now want to waive your right and talk to us? Or do you want to remain silent? I think that that's an easy and expedient answer. It's and he doesn't answer. He just sits there. Then that's it. Impassively. Then that's it. Then they have to stop. There's no burden. I mean, then the burden isn't met, this heavy burden that he's knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived those rights. I don't you, you square that with Mosley. Well, Mosley says that the longer that you question someone, that, that, that Mosley is the persistent questioning case where you keep questioning the guy and questioning the guy. And this is very clearly a Mosley case. You've got two officers in that room, and they talk about the fact that they're both questioning and they talk about the different themes they used. The very fact that they had to change themes showed that the defendant was not being cooperative and, not was, and was not engaging in this conversation willingly. And all he has to do is say, I don't want to talk to you. It's over. And all they had to say, I've got to take the flip side, is, and because it's their house, because if they don't want to incre- uh, create the ambiguity, they're the ones that have to say, will you talk to us now? They don't even have to ask him to sign the waiver, although I think the waiver is proof positive. Once he signs the waiver, you know, I haven't got much to argue in terms of the admissibility of a confession. But if they create the ambiguity, then according to Miranda, that ambiguity is resolved against them. I don't understand how they create the ambiguity. Because they're leaving, they're not moving off the square one. They're leaving this where they're, they're not looking for an answer 
to whether the rights want to be want to be waived, and they're immediately, as they did in this case, going into interview mode. They're going to start to question him. And this gets to Mosley, where, in effect, you end up where you're badgering somebody. And in this case, they used many different tactics. The softening technique here have a mint. Well, I guess this gets back to a question I had earlier. I thought there was no dispute on this record that there was no involuntariness. We're talking about a violation of the, t- the technical, important, but formal Miranda requirements. This is not a case where the person says my statements were involuntary. If you are going to base this on an implied waiver, don't you have to look to see what the circumstances were that were going on? How can you look at the very end of a two-hour? That's correct, and that's where how I read Butler. You have to look at the circumstances, and you're saying no. You don't look at any circumstances. They've got to ask the question, and he has to waive. The other yes. circumstances are irrelevant. Well, then, if yes, why are you talking to me about two hours, 15 minutes, what they're doing? You say the circumstances don't matter. If you find that the officer does not have to, ask the question, does not have to clarify whether, in fact, the defendant is remaining silent, then I do have to talk to the rest to try and persuade you that in those two hours and 45 minutes, he was not being cooperative. He was not willingly entering into — That issue is not in this case, though. Well — As I understand it, you lost at every stage on the voluntariness and have not renewed that, correct? This is a Miranda case. It's not a Fifth Amendment case. I did — I did talk about voluntariness in my brief to this Court. Your your argument would be the same if the — this was compressed to uh, 45 minutes. Yes. Same result. Yes. Uh, 30 minutes. Yes. 15. Yes. <laughs> One. I mean, that's the — I don't want to piggyback off Justice Kennedy's point, but that's the whole point, is you do not look at any of those circumstances you say before they can say anything more, they have to get a waiver. So it's 30 seconds. If they go on before they — they sit there — for how long before? But how long do they have to ask? Do you want to, do you want if, to waive? If you were going to go and use an implied waiver, if and, and I think that you can use an implied waiver, you you are interested in looking at what happened in this case to decide whether, in fact, the yes answers were an implied waiver. And I, that's why I'm arguing about the circumstances. That there's nothing in these circumstances that could lead you to believe that after two hours and 45 minutes, there was a voluntary waiver. The implied could, waiver. Could you describe a situation where you think there would be an implied waiver? Yeah. I'm willing to talk to you, but I won't put anything in writing. I'm willing to listen to what you have to say, but I'm not going to answer your questions. And then as, you're, then as the conversation, there, a conversation ensues, and I think this is what Justice Well, I thought that that doesn't sound implied. That sounds expressed to me. Okay. So is... Excuse me. A waiver of what? I thought the Chief Justice was talking about a waiver of your right to remain silent. Yes. That wasn't a waiver of his right to remain silent. Uh, Then let me give another example of a waiver of the right to remain silent. I'm willing to listen to you. It seems to me you're confusing a waiver of, of the right to remain silent with a waiver of the right not to be interrogated, which is the right that you're asserting here a right not to be interrogated unless going in you say, I waive my right to remain silent. That's, that's the new right that you're asserting. Well, it's not a, a new right. right. not to be interrogated. It's, it's not a new right. It's not a new right. The police cannot interrogate the defendant unless they read him his rights, and my understanding of Miranda is they obtain a waiver of those rights. Without obtaining the waiver, questioning cannot ensue, 
because then the rest of the questioning becomes trying to talk the defendant into waiving the rights, trying to talk the defendant into confessing, and you have badgering and you have persistent questioning, and you don't end up with a, vo- a volitional waiver or a volitional statement. Okay, so what, what is an implied waiver case? Well, it's the implied waiver case is North Carolina versus Butler. Well, that's right. Now, getting back to Ms. Saharsky's point, she said if you prevail, you have to overrule Butler. And it seems to me that that's the point we're at. But Butler, I don't think you have to overrule Butler because Butler really was a right to counsel case. It did talk about the right to remain silent, but most of the language has to do with the fact that this gentleman did not waive the right to counsel. So I don't think you have to. I think you can still have implied waivers. So there's there's no implied waiver with respect to the right to remain silent? That's a hard question. And I don't have have an easy answer or a hard answer for you. I don't think that that you want to hogtie the police. I agree with that. I think the police should be able to talk to a defendant, but but it's got to be voluntary, and that in order to do that, you really do have to get in a waiver. Um, U.S. versus Cardwell, I think, is an implied waiver where the defendant starts to talk to the uh, officer. They're they're in a police car, and the defendant starts to talk to the officer after an hour and a half of silence, Um, although that, again, isn't a custodial situation. But the police found, but the uh, court found that that was, in fact, a waiver. So if there are no further questions, I'll cede my time. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Restuccia, you have four minutes remaining. I I have to say that uh, page 475 and 476, particularly of Miranda, do talk in terms of a of, of a waiver. Did are there did the subsequent cases indicate uh, a, an articulation of that view that's closer to your position? Well, I, I think Miranda itself contemplates pre-waiver interrogation. If you look at page 14 of the of the resp- reply brief, the yellow brief, and the quote from Miranda talking about the process is. is Page 14. Once warnings have been given, the subsequent procedure is clear. If this is page, four, page 14 in the, on the left side uh, in the middle, it's a block quote from Miranda. This is Miranda's description of the processes. Once warnings have been given, the subsequent procedure is clear. If the indiv- individual indicates in any manner at any time prior to or during questioning, that he wishes to remain silent, the interrogation must cease. Well, the, I don't think that was the question. The question, at oh. least that as I understood it, is that Miranda says you cannot admit a confession into evidence unless he has first waived it. That's right. Then it says clearly that even if the police and the prosecution testify he did waive it, even if they say he did explicitly, still, if there's a long questioning, even then, the court should be very careful about admitting it. Right, but the, and doesn't it flow from that a fortiori that if he doesn't admit it and all there is is the long questioning, that there has been no waiver? But here, Mr. Tompkins answered a series of questions. He answered knowing- three questions. Right. All right. One, do you believe in God? Yes. Two, do you pray to God? Yes. Three, have you asked God for forgiveness for shooting the boy? Yes. Okay. So you're, where, where did he waive it? He, that, that's what the federal courts have done in direct review, and this is what Cardwell did, and uh, there are five or six circuits have found the answers to the questions themselves can be the best. In this case, after two hours and 15 minutes, when he gave the answers I just said, 
when did he waive his Miranda rights? When he answered those questions. Because the All right. Because Any, then, then Miranda is no, uh, I, It says you can't admit the stuff after a long questioning unless he waives. Obviously, he says something or there'd be nothing to admit. The, that's what the federal courts have done in applying Butler, because the words and, and actions of the person interrogated can give rise to the inference that the person has waived. Where the person has taken action that's inconsistent with the exercise of his rights, it is proper to find waiver. The, may I just this, go back to page 14 in your reply brief? Once warnings have been given, the subsequent procedure is clear. If the individual indicates in any manner, at any time, prior to or during questioning, that he wishes to remain silent, the interrogation must cease. Right. So the question is whether, during those two hours, by not answering a, a number of questions, did he indicate in any way that he wished to remain silent? Right. This, so if you look at the invocation analysis, did he make it clear that I don't want to participate in this interrogation? The detective te- held his testimony. That, that any, in any manner that he wished to remain silent. And until the t- two hours and a half later, when he did answer the three questions, it's, pretty, it's at least arguable that his silence indicated he wished to remain well, silent. What happens is when Davis, this court, made clear for the purpose of invocation that the invocation has to be unambiguous because the police have to know when they have to cut off their questioning. And the, and if, so if it's ambiguous, it's ultimately for the question of invocation, his burden to assert the right to take an affirmative action to show, I don't want to answer any questions. Detective Helgert believed through his limited responses, the give and take of part of this interview, that he was a willing participant in the interview. This is the factual record that was established by the state courts. It's important to remember that this case being reviewed in habeas, that those factual determinations are entitled to deference unless disproven. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Case is submitted.